Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, stranger. The Opus is moving out and into a new season as we continue to explore the ongoing legacy of music's most iconic records. I'm your host, Adam Unz, and this season we're celebrating the 45th anniversary of Billy Joel's fifth studio album, The Stranger, a record whose critical and commercial success catapulted the piano man to superstardom. Helping us explore this classic collection are artists like Billy Joel's drummer Liberty DeVito, Regina Spector, Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness, Rozzy, Lissy, The Arkells, Bayside's Anthony Renari, and Ben Folds. Great music shapes lives, shakes rafters, and embeds itself into our culture. So let's find out why only the good die young as we deep dive into The Stranger. The new season is out now and is brought to you by the Consequence Podcast Network and Sony Legacy Recordings. Find us at consequence.net or wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to the Spark Parade, where I geek out with artists and entertainers about their cultural spark of inspiration. I'm Adam Unz. Thanks so much for joining me. It's still Pride Month. Yay! I've been chatting with a lot of incredible queer people this month. But we're going to mix it up a little bit today, and I'm very excited about it. I had an amazing conversation with comedian Chris Gethard about his spark of inspiration, the John Cusack-starring comedy Gross Point Blank. But it's also so much more than that. We talked about Chris's relationship with Judd Apatow, as well as Judd Apatow's films. We talked about Andy Kaufman. We talked about Cameron Crowe. We talked about comedy in general. Whew! It is a wide-ranging and very exciting and super fun conversation. Seriously, I really, really love this one, and I can't wait for you to hear it. So even though Chris isn't an LGBTQIA dude, he's an ally, and this conversation is such a fucking treat that I think it fits right into the celebratory nature of Pride. It's also a longer conversation than my usual chats, but I think that's a great thing. Uh, my friend Joel always whines when my episodes go over 30 minutes, so sorry, Joel, but, uh, tough shit. Anyway, uh, let's get to it. Quick Chris facts. Chris Gethard is an actor, comedian, writer, and podcaster based out of New Jersey. He is a revered stand-up comedian, and his debut stand-up special, Chris Gethard Career Suicide, was released in 2017 on HBO. As an actor, Chris has appeared on The Office, Crashing, Broad City, Space Force, Parks and Rec, Inside Amy Schumer, and more. He is also the host of the critically acclaimed podcast, Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People, where he opens the phone line to one anonymous caller and he can't hang up first no matter what. His latest stand-up special, Chris Gathered Half My Life, was released on June 1st, followed by an album-specific release on June 4th, and you can watch or listen to it now on Apple TV, Amazon Prime Video, Spotify, and virtually every other entertainment platform known to humanity. 
And quick gross point blank facts. Gross Point Blank is a 1997 black comedy crime film directed by George Armitage and starring John Cusack, Minnie Driver, Alan Arkin, and Dan Aykroyd. John Cusack plays an assassin who returns to his hometown to attend a high school reunion. And there you have it. Now, on to the exciting part. Here comes my chat with Chris Gethard about Gross Point Blank. So the first question is always, uh, do you remember seeing this movie for the first time? I do. I mean, I saw it in the theater um, in northern New Jersey where I grew up. It was me and some high school friends. And from what I remember, it wasn't like we were all clamoring to see it. It was just kind of something that was out. I was a John Cusack fan uh, from Say Anything. And the soundtrack, I, th I think that... I think. Many people, even if they don't remember this movie, if they remember anything about it, they're like, oh, yeah, killer soundtrack. Um, so we all knew that it had like that throwback to a lot of the 80s stuff that, you know, there's so much 80s nostalgia then, too. So, yeah, I saw it in the theater, really loved it. And then I think when I really actually when I realized how good it was, was um, I got a VHS copy while I was in college. And for people my age, people, you know, I sound like, oh, back in my day, but like. We didn't have streaming, so you had like six VHS tapes in your dorm room and you just watched those six movies over and over again. And then people would drop by, you'd be like, you want to watch, watch this scene again? And for me, it was like, the three I remember having were Pulp Fiction, Friday, and Gross Point Blank. Like, those were the three VHS tapes that I had. So I wound up watching the movie like dozens of times. Yeah. I, uh, I have a lot of conversations about like the digital and analog divide and you know the feeling of like walking into video stores and like you know just casually perusing the offerings seeing what's out there and not uh, having limitless almost overwhelming choices like we do now and also like the idea of things not being available like wanting really wanting to see a movie on the day that it came out and it's like not available because everybody's already rented it and that feeling of having a collection of movies and you know a finite amount of space where you live or and yeah. and you know not uh, infinite infinite amount of money for most people so um really having to be selective and like just having the movies that you really love around you i think about that i think about with rentals too of how like you couldn't just watch the first 20 minutes and then if you like it keep watching and if you don't turn it off try something else like this was your night like you drove there you spent money you don't have a backup option so it meant something i think a lot too one that makes me laugh is like how many movies I saw, like it was totally standard to just be flipping through the channels, land on a movie and be like, oh, I heard this was good and just watch it from wherever it was at that point in the movie, knowing, oh, if I like it, I'll just go back. Like I, I saw the last 40 minutes of this movie and now I really like them. Let me uh, go rent it so I can catch the first 25. It was like, that was another weird thing that that's a good one that people will never have to do again. There's no like there's no curmudgeonly nostalgia for like, I watched the last 35 minutes of three o'clock high with commercials. It was pretty good. Let me see if I can go find the rest. Like that is a system that I think it's probably good that that's gone. Yeah. And also just remembering having to rewind movies before you brought them back and stuff. I worked at a movie store in high school and they had machines that just rewound movies and they had like six of them in a row so that, you know, whenever people brought them back and they didn't rewind things, they'd get charged like a dollar or something yeah. for not rewinding. And yeah, I think in in that respect, the the digital age has uh, significant advantages. But also just like with this particular movie, I think I remember it feeling really 
kind of unassuming as well. Like, you know, like something that I was interested in, but not something that I, you know, I didn't have any of like preconceived notions of feeling like it was going to be something that I would really, really love. Um, and I kind of feel that way about a lot of John, uh, John Cusack movies that I think it was a similar experience for me with say anything and maybe even with high fidelity i think maybe with high fidelity at that point i was like in into his movies enough that it was like maybe this is going to be another one that's like the the ones that i've liked before but with this one i watched the trailer the other day and it's like a very 90s trailer yeah. anyway but it gives absolutely nothing away and it's just like mm, guns uh ooh, fighting uh high school reunion question mark the end and that's it <laughs> yeah i i i rem- I remember it feeling very under the radar, but pretty quickly, even in the theater, I was like, this is, this, this, I I just, I was like, this movie's working for me hard. It's pushing a lot of buttons. And over the years, I've thought a lot about why, and I'm sure we'll get into it. But one thing that I really think this movie doesn't get enough credit for is I think like it's one of the best blends of like totally ham-fisted premise professional assassin goes to high school reunion that's a pretty heavy comedy premise that could go in a lot of ways that could be an SNL sketch you know but then you look at the uh, shocking amount of heart that this movie has without ever apologizing for that premise and I think it really walks that line better than a lot of movies in general and and also when you think about what comedy was leading up to 1997 and what you think about comedy was after I, I, I sort of feel like that that premise kind of sums up a lot of what comedy had been but then the way it's delivered I think sort of points towards what like Apatow was about to do in the 2000s where it goes well well, let's actually make it have some moments with heart and that stuff that he became kind of I think legendary for rightfully and and he's been a mentor to me like he he starting with freaks and geeks right legendarily it was like nope we're gonna wear it on our sleeve this movie does that a few years prior to that and certainly there had been movies that had but i remember feeling like oh this is a wacky premise and also there's some scenes where i'm like my heart is kind of in my throat and and that that was uh that was something that i think i really walked away with uh in my own career for sure was seeing not not just like having it both ways but also understanding like you can mess with the audience's expectations if you kind of give yourself that wide a playing field and i think the movie i think this movie does that in a big way it has like such hard jokes too and then back to back with something where you go oh my god that's so real and it's it's really it's really cool that way yeah and uh, i think that um balance between like high concept uh wacky hijinks and really grounded funny but natural performances from John Cusack and and from Minnie Driver as well, like really believing those characters and also not ignoring the complicated feelings that people have about adolescence, about being in high school, about looking back on that time in your life, the anxiety that people feel about like going to high school reunions if they're fucking crazy enough to do it and yeah just just really making you feel like these characters are real people even though the situation is heightened and uh, a little bit unrealistic uh yeah but and and i think having that soundtrack the music is is pretty relentless throughout like there's it's just like hit after hit after hit and it feels like it's it even even though it's constant it doesn't feel uh, intrusive. It's it it's a complements the feeling of it and really gets you in the mindset of like this is what his uh, teenage years were like. And it, certainly having one of the two main characters be a DJ 
helps with that. <laughs> yeah, very, yeah, yeah. very simple technique to get a lot of music in there where you could say what you want with the music. I love it. I love it. I love the jokes. Another thing that I think is very, because it's funny, you used the phrase John Cusack movie before, and that is kind of like a subgenre, right? Of 80s movies or romantic comedies. Like there's certain movies where you knew I'm seeing a John Cusack movie and, and I was someone who was a fan of that. And you know, there's some of his movies that aren't John Cusack movies, especially now. Um, and then back in the day, yeah, that, that was a John Cusack movie. One of the things that I, I don't even realize, I don't even think I realized how much I was taking away from this, but like the more you learned about him, the more you see it show up in his work in a real way. Like he is a legit super fan of The Clash and how many movies this has Joe Strummer, this has The Clash. He's wearing Clash t-shirts and Say Anything, if I remember right. You find out that he, you know, the character in Say Anything is a kickboxer, but he was really into kickboxing. And then the guy he has the hallway fight, the guy who plays um, Felix LaPoubelle, one of the best named characters I would <laughs> yeah. ever, with one of the great scenes where he walks in, picks up the ID card and goes, it is I, Sidney Feldman. Oh my, you've right. changed. Like that <laughs> yes. great yeah, gag. Yeah. That's his real life kickboxing instructor. That's Benny the Jet Urquita is like this legendary kickboxer. You know, the amount of Chicago actors that are in this movie in particular. And you know, he's a Chicago guy. He really loves Chicago. You got all these Second City legends. Alan Arkin, Barbara Harris plays his teacher. Of course, Dan Aykroyd, Second City. You got Jeremy Piven. You got his sister, Joan. You know, I think one of his other sisters is, um, oh yeah, like people spread all over in the reunion scene. So you get this sense of like, uh, John Cusack takes care of his people. He loves Chicago. He loves the class weird he likes kickboxing and no matter how much and he's a great actor he's a very great charming likable committed actor but you also walk away feeling like i feel like i get a sense that i would just like him i get the sense that i know him and it's another thing in my career that served me really well is just i hit a certain point where i realized the number one thing i can do better than a lot of the people i came up with is just sort of like be myself on stage and kind of wear my flaws and address my insecurities publicly and, and just kind of like put it all out there in a public way and, and kind of be emotionally naked, which is a very pretentious thing for a comedian to say. But I do realize there, there were a lot of things that influenced that, but it's easy to point to things like David Letterman and Howard Stern and Andy Kaufman, like the comedians, comedian, like the actual comedy output that I like and go, yeah, I like their personalities went through. But Cusack did it in an entirely different way. He was still a committed actor, but you still got to walk away with that very important feeling of, I like that guy. I like that guy. And that's, that, that's the John Cusack movies in quotation marks, right? That's gross point blank, high fidelity, say anything, probably serendipity towards the tail end. Like, whereas I kind of feel like you watch like One Crazy Summer and you're like, I like John Cusack. I don't know if that's a John Cusack movie. And it, I think it's because it doesn't bleed through. Of like, oh, this guy feels things and has input and leaves his fingerprints on his work. Right. Sorry, I'm rambling, but I have a lot to no, no, say no. about this movie. <laughs> no, that's all that's all great stuff. And it's like, you know, I think you could feel in in really early movies when he was like a kid, the sure thing and he isn't he in 16 candles he for is. a little bit. He yeah. Is. Yeah. And in those movies, it's like you can see that he is injecting his personality into the characters that he plays but he didn't have as much agency as as much um clout in hollywood he didn't have the ability to really uh assert 
his his uh, personality to like you know put his stamp on the stuff that he was doing. And as he gained more power, as he started you know getting involved in producing and and that kind of stuff, you see those influences, the little bits of himself that he allows to kind of be a part of the characters that he's playing. But you still believe that it's not him it's like obviously he's not a hitman (laughs) um yeah but he plays them in a way he plays these characters in a way that's like you can imagine hanging out with him even though the situation is extraordinary he still feels like a real person and that's very rare for an actor right like i feel like you you think about it like you watch tarantino you get a sense of what quentin tarantino likes in real life like you get he likes you know here's the movies he's paying homage to and man does he like feet like you walk away you know that you know like you know it totally different example and not somebody who's critically lauded but in his own way was very revolutionary like kevin smith like love it or hate it if there's one thing whether it's clerks which everybody's like wow he did something cool or whether it's some, one of those later ones you go i know who that guy is i he likes comic books and new jersey and all these other things and but those are filmmakers right it's john cusack didn't direct say anything Cameron Crowe did now he co-wrote he co-wrote um gross point blank if I remember right so he was able to put his fingerprints on it more directly that way but maybe that's part of why it is one that I hold so close to my vest is because it's maybe the most bold-faced version of that but yeah I love it and and again of course just like to have a to to have a movie where you can have a, a scene as funny as like the two government agents tricking Dan Aykroyd into sitting in a toilet stall because they they've convinced him he has to hide cuz the mark is about to catch them all talking to have that that's such a dumb gag and then within a few scenes have the main character realize his home has been bulldozed and his mom is in a mental hospital and he's been sending her money and he doesn't know where the money went that's a heavy scene you know and then you follow it up later with he goes to the uh quickie mart that's where his old house was and there's like this crazy cartoonish shootout where the guy working at the front desk has headphones on and is playing a video game so he doesn't hear like gunshots and like destruction i'm like you are bracketing gags with stuff that has so much heart and actually one scene that anytime i talk about this movie there's one scene in it that i think is so brilliant it's so brilliant where they never really mention his father and uh and there's a scene, kind of comes out of nowhere. There's nothing that leads up to it. And uh, they sort of walk away from it where it just cuts to him in a graveyard. This very sort of slow, like introspective sounding Joe Strummer song is playing. He stands in front of a tombstone with, with his dad's name on it. Dumps a bottle of whiskey entirely. Drops the bottle and walks away. You go, I don't know that I've ever seen a relationship explained so succinctly in a film. I mean, there's one actor... And I feel like I just learned everything I need to know about that character's entire relationship with his father. And he didn't say a word. And the thing he was acting against was a tombstone. And just through the tone and the simple choices, they tell you so much. I I sit there, I go, wow, wow. You know, and then it's the same movie where there's two guys pointing guns at each other under a dining table. And and when the waitress tells John Cusack what he ordered isn't an omelet, he has a line like, I don't want to debate semantics. I just need the protein. And you're like, how? You're having it both ways in this movie in a way I really love. You are not scared to push and pull it in any direction that you choose it's it's really for 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 a thing that on the surface feels like a gaggy comedy there's a lot more underneath it and uh that that proved very aspirational to me in a lot of ways yeah it's it's super tight it's like there really isn't anything that's throwaway everything means something and in rewatching it my memories of like that 
shootout at the end to me that was like a third of the movie like i, I mean and right. part of it was just like being a kid and thinking that you know shootouts are cool or whatever but it's quick it's like two minutes or something and the end of the movie everything is tied up really quickly as well but nothing feels rushed it doesn't feel like that is an unnatural way for things to end and also the stuff that you were saying about this almost i think completely wordless thing in the graveyard and just like explaining his entire relationship with his father in this very subtle way there's a lot of stuff that's unspoken about like the relationship between his character and Minnie Driver's character and you understand so much about them just like seeing the house that she grew up in and the interaction that he has with his mother and that moment in the graveyard it's like you understand so much about what has gone on between the two of them and they don't say anything about it and you get why he had such massive insecurity that she had such a blind spot to where she's going I got this life of affluence and relatively carefree and you know this father who kind of dotes on me and then you've got a mother with mental problems and an alcoholic dad and clearly clearly this was a kid going i don't know you know all the dots you just laid out you, you can connect it that she can't see that he just went i don't know how to be in love with i don't know how to settle down at the age of 18 i have not seen this work i haven't seen it and none of that needs to be said. It's not some dramatic monologue. And I love that you brought up the shootout scene at the end because this movie is bracketed if you look at it. First of all, one of the great opening scenes I would argue in a movie ever, and it ties right back into that last one, where that opening scene where he's on the phone with Joan Cusack and she's reading the invitation to the reunion. And meanwhile, he's walking in an empty apartment with a, with a sniper rifle, tracking this guy on the bike, takes him out. She's just in between every step of, like the assassinations are so rote and, and this is just their day job that they could just read it. He doesn't even need to focus on the killing. He can hear her reading it. So funny, takes her out. Dan Ackert comes out, snakes the job. So sets up everything you need to know. Okay, this guy is this badass. He's high school reunion, all that, right? And... Then at the end, the shootout you mentioned, really, really similar, right? But the complete evolution of the character. He's no longer saying, don't even read this to me, throw that away, stop reading it. He now is actually in the middle of a shootout killing people while explaining who he is honestly for the first time to this girl he's always loved she's completely shell-shocked but to him again i'm just killing people but i also want to let you know like here's who i am and i've actually really been thinking about blah 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 our relationship and blah, 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 blah. maybe maybe i can finally take a chance and now he's accepted that he needs this growth and he's accepted that he does have this last minute ability to change mirrors the beginning so well and then again so emotional right and then he hits that point of really laying it out that he wants to be with her after everybody's dead and this punchline i love things that have an unapologetic punchline and just the dad poking his head out from the bathtub and going you got my blessing i'm like you have it always you have this shootout with this emotional speech dan Aykroyd, and this i would argue is actually probably like dan Aykroyd had already hit a lull and then he went into vodka, Crystal Skull Dan Aykroyd after this. And this, I feel like they squeezed out one last great performance from Dan Aykroyd. Great performance. He's got all these funny lines in it. There's all these funny moments. And it's all overlaid with this emotional speech. And then it hits the emotional high point. And then you get a punchline like that. I'm like, honestly, how do you even write that? How do you even include all that? 
And what you said is a two-minute stretch. It's some of the hardest laughs I got. It's some of the stuff where it's the most tender. And then it wraps up with this killer punchline that, that doesn't feel hacky. I just go, man, this was pretty inspired. This, this, uh, this writing team was pretty inspired for a lot of this movie. And those things in particular, you just don't get them. You just don't get them all the time. And with no fat on the bones. And most of this movie, fat-free. It's really, really impressive. Time for a quick break, because somebody's got to keep the lights on around here. But we'll be right back. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And, you know, there are moments of broader comedy, but for the most part, even the Joan Cusack and Dan Aykroyd, who are like the closest to kind of chewing scenery, although they're they're both brilliantly cast. They both like are amazing in this. You still believe those characters and you just believe that they're kind of a little louder than like the, the John Cusack character and the Minnie Driver character. They're a little broader as people. And then also, yeah, just having, it's like, it, it's the whole movie is quick. It moves really, the, the pacing is, is really speedy, but there's still room for those more emotional kind of thoughtful, introspective touches. And it does, those, those don't feel rushed either. It's a, it's like, that's at the center of the movie. It's kind of about taking stock of your life, thinking of the things that you regret, the anxiety that people feel about, you know, going to high school reunions and worrying about, you know, interacting with people they haven't seen for a long time because of whatever, like not even about, you know, abandoning your girlfriend and joining the army and becoming a hitman, but like, you know, when he gets to the reunion and having these like kind of awkward interactions and you see all these like people that you recognize from your high school experience, like, you know, the overeager, like a student who's the one who's checking people in and, you know, the kind of bully gone to seed and who reveals that he loves poetry who reveals he's always yeah. like it's just like yeah. oh give that to me give me that hallway scene yes <laughs> and he's yeah. like begrudgingly takes the time to be like fine read your poem like i'll listen to the poem it's really great bob you want to hear the rest no i think i get it i think i get it bob we're gonna move it's so good yeah and that's another one of my favorite moments is just you know the drunk bully saying oh we're gonna i'm gonna fucking punch you and he's just like listen there is nothing between us <laughs> we don't we're not gonna fight there's no reason for us to fight we don't have a thing <laughs> and it's just like it's beautiful and it totally diffuses like he's it's just like so, so disarmed by that <sighs> i wish like it's funny because like as far as how this movie's inspired me i think a, a lot of stuff in my career has been very contradictory to each other like i had this public access show that a lot of people first found about me and that show was completely insane but it had a lot of moments of heart in it and some that i actually hold close to my chest as some of my favorite moments from the show and then my hbo special was like this thing about depression and suicide where a lot of comedians were like 
is this even comedy? And me going, well, there's a lot of laughs in it and I kind of don't care. And then I have this podcast and it all the, it's, I have this frustrating career for myself where people keep finding out about me through different things. And their perception of me is as a completely different artist than the people who know me through something else. And then the podcast has gotten like really intensely serious overall. And people have revealed to me, you know, we just do phone calls and people have revealed some brutally um, intense things. But in every episode, I feel like more often than not, I do manage to find at least one hard laugh. And I sit there, I go, man, maybe if my career was a little easier to define, or maybe if my brain worked in a way where I just wanted to do one thing, or I was more content to just try to like write a pilot and go pitch it, maybe it would make more sense to people. Maybe I'd feel like I had firmer footing. But I look at it and I go, well, the commonality is that I go, I want stuff that feels insane. And I want stuff that feels funny. And I also want all of, I also want to kind of let people know where my head's at and who I am. And I'm very willing to just kind of like tinker with adjusting the dials on the level of which of those things show up between like the insanity and the comedy and the heart. And I look at it, I go, oh, it all makes sense to me. It's like all, but it doesn't really make sense to a lot of other people. But it it's rooted in a few things. And I think Gross Point Blank might be the least obvious one. There was a moment on my old TV show, if I may, where we had this, and it's public access TV. So it's, anybody who knows public access TV knows, like the whole thing, the whole vibe of this is that it's going to be nuts. Like this is every show on public access is either like conspiracy theories, local politics, and the local politics shows I actually think serve an amazing purpose and kudos to public access TV. It's an underrated service or complete insane. Every show, uh, uh, just lunacy, a lot of lunacy. And we did an episode called Belly Burrito where I sat on a table, I laid down on a table wrapped in saran wrap and the audience was able to call in and pick out ingredients to add to a burrito being built on my belly. And then we were gonna have an audience member volunteer to eat it at the end. One of the dumbest premises we've ever thought of in over 200 episodes of admittedly insane public access television. But because I do try to speak honestly, John Cusack let us know he liked The Clash. He liked kickboxing. He loved Chicago. I, I always would kind of wear what my current interests were in my background on my sleeve. And this guy calls up. He goes, you know, I heard a few episodes back, you like kind of offhandedly mentioned that you recently like switched medications for your, uh, your, your mental health stuff. Like he's like, I know that it's kind of weird to ask in the midst of all this, but like, how did you know it was time? And, uh, I'm laying on a table wrapped in saran wrap with like tortillas and like chopped peppers and sour cream all over me. And I go, well, you know, because in my mind, I'm going, I'm not scared of a serious moment. I'm just not. I know that they can balance. I sit there and I'm like, well, you know, like I was struggling through this and I started to feel like some things were slipping and I felt myself hiding things from loved ones. And that's a huge warning sign. And the guy just interrupts me and he goes, oh, cool. You got any salsa? And it was a prank and he set me up and cut me off. And I just went, man, like I'm very willing to go there. And even though my stuff is kind of cult, it's attracting the other people who like that person who was on the phone either already loves or would like, would love gross point blank. I know that. I just know that because they understood that moment. So I don't want to make it too much about myself, but I sit there, I go, wow, like I didn't know when I wandered into a theater in 1997, just because I was like, yeah, John, John Cusack's in it and it has Violent Femmes on the soundtrack. I didn't know that I was still going to be thinking about it like two and a half decades later, but I do. Yeah. And I think, you know, the parallels there are that funny, what is funny, I, I think that the, the funniest stuff in the world 
comes from a place that people can relate to and that's grounded in real experience. And sometimes real experiences are sad, they suck, and life isn't perfect. And people have more, you know, like people aren't funny all the time. People aren't happy all the time. Yes. And understanding those like peaks and troughs and that's something that this movie does really well and i think that's something that john cusack does really well and also just being able to like say who you are on stage is not who you are in everyday life but it's a version of you yes you are injecting your life into what you're doing and that's what makes it relatable. That's what makes people want to come back is because they can see that you're letting them in. And it's not all the way in, but it's like you're you're letting them see parts of you. I think that is so astute. It is a succinct version of the thing I've been rambling this whole time. <laughs> so thank you for it. And, and just the thing I want to underline is like coming from a comedy background, I know that there's a lot of comedy fans and even comedians who go, yeah, but it's... It's fake comedy. It needs more punchlines. And I go, well, actually, what I would argue is that like having a gag, for example, like where where Cusack and Ackroyd, where where Ackroyd starts listing which other assassins are joining his union, and they they're all they just all sound so weird and funny, and it kind of builds to the point where they describe one that is a a two person team where one of them is a little person. And they are, their catchphrase is queens of the hotel hit. You just sit there, you go, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? (sighs) But I feel like rather than view things through a lens where you go, is comedy sort of selling out by then inserting sadness into it? I I actually go, in, in my viewpoint, what happens is you are giving your audience the comedy you promised. And that is this sort of unspoken contract that lets them know the sad parts here are not meant to be performative or exploitative. And I think that that is why the Apatow wave that came later appealed to me so greatly. Seeing like some of the brutally heartbreaking scenes in Freaks and Geeks, you know, like that scene where I think it's at the end of one of the episodes where they've just shown Bill take it on the chin all day, but there's so much funny stuff, obviously. And then they have that scene at the end where he just goes home and he sits in front of his TV and Gary Shandling's doing stand-up and he's just like sitting there with his goofy laugh and his mouth full and he just you just sit there, you go, oh, he's like finding this comfort after this day of pain. I go, the fact that I've laughed so many times in this episode is actually why I'm willing to sit here and watch this because there's other shows where I, I think they come up with, they go, Let's write a show that's about X, Y, and Z, and it's an issue-driven thing. And you can tell that that was the priority. And and to me, I go, you're manipulating your audience in a way that seems a little unfair to me. Um, if you're if you're making comedy from the perspective of it will be about pain, I sit there and I go, if you want to use comedy as the delivery system for those discussions, it has to still be about jokes because that is the service to the audience. And if that service is provided well enough, you now have the right to throw some stuff in there that turns some other gears in their mind. So I really, you know, it's one of the things, I I actually really love true crime. And this wave of true crime the past few years, I've been soaking it all up and I love it. But there is certainly an argument to be made for some of this stuff is just its own version of pornography. It is prioritizing 
everything but the humanity, finding the most disturbing imagery to give the audience who's seeking this like a dopamine hit, but that almost feels like, I hate to use a weird analogy, but it feels like this Coke is cut with a lot of other bad stuff. You know what Mm. I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. this is not pure. They're throwing in embalming fluid and baby powder. Like, this is, and I I can feel that with a lot of genres. And with comedy, I think I sniff it out really hard because I'm someone, I work so hard with my HBO special to go, if the funny parts are not as funny as the stuff I do on stage that's just jokes that have nothing to do with depression, I'm not going to do this show. Mm. The jokes about this stuff need to get laughs as big as my joke about visiting a gator-themed amusement park. <laughs> yeah. If the joke, if the jokes about you know side effects of medication or times I've tried to hurt myself don't get laughs that big, then I'm... I am exploiting the audience's pain and trying to convince them this is art that it is not. So, like I said, a handful of things that play into that, but the some of the pun- the queens of the hotel hit, you got my blessing, the protein line, you know, just the line that makes me laugh so hard. Like he's driving with Jeremy Piven, Jeremy Piven goes, "Ah, Debbie's house." Yeah, really snuck up on us, didn't it? No, you drove us here. Like things like that. Where I go. <laughs> Those are the things that make me then so happy to sit back and go, he's holding up a baby at his high school reunion and you see him thinking, oh, he never says it, but you just see him having all those emotions we all have at some point where you go, I convinced myself I didn't want kids and I, oh shit, I now a friend my age who was a real friend has one and I'm holding it and I'm going, oh, I think those were all excuses. I think I was scared. Yeah. Maybe I want a kid, but I've backed myself into a corner with this life I lead that I don't really like. And I was like the cool, subversive, counterculture kid in high school. And now I am a living representation of how cutthroat capitalism can be. Fuck. You go, oh, wow. And obviously you're not sitting in the theater eating your popcorn, crystallizing the thoughts that way. But you sit there and you go, man. And then like two scenes later is him and Jeremy Piven wrapping a body in a a (laughs) banner about like the fucking bake sale or whatever it was and throwing the body in a furnace you go man they're 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 allowing they're allowing me to ponder life's great complexities and i don't even have to sit here and feel pretentious because i'm just seeing a comedy man it's really awesome it's really awesome and i i mean going back to what you were saying about judd apatow as well and i I mean the i think comparison between his stuff and and this movie are that's a good one It's, it's like earning the silliness, earning the, the broader stuff because you have a, a framework, a grounded framework. You believe these characters and like that moment where they're listing off all the different hitmen, it isn't like, you know, waka waka. It's, it's, it, they're, they're not pushing it so hard that it feels like it's taking you out of the moment. It's just like these are, yeah, it's it's crazy that, you know, there's all these different kinds of, of hitmen, but they're real people we know. And John Cusack comments about them where he's just like, oh, yeah, he's mean oh, or, you know, yeah, whatever. I don't like that. Um, I don't like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so good. It's so good. Right. Yeah. And the little things too. Just so many lines that are like that. Like when, when Joan Cusack's character goes, oh, we got this new job proposed. It would be so easy. It's a Greenpeace boat. John Cusack yeah. just, I have scruples. You're like, <laughs> yes. It's the way they so... <sighs> Just this world of it's similar to me of like them reacting to all the characters of the assassin world you never meet of the same thing of like where what are the ethics and standards of being an assassin and seeing how some of them have them and some of them do I'm like it's so funny it's like they suggest this world of just this ludicrous world of of, of constant death 
But yeah, where they all know each other the same way that most people know the guy who works in accounting and you don't know him that well, but like you get a bad vibe. Like that's how they treat the queens of the hotel hit. Like it's so funny to me. Yeah. And also the relationship between John Cusack and Dan Aykroyd, it is like fucking Gary from accounts who, you know, always microwaves tuna. I can't, oh, I just don't want to talk to him. Yeah, with his his beer belly and his tucked in shirt. (laughs) Right, right. He's like, he's exactly that guy. He's exactly that guy. It's really great. It's really great. And you know what's so funny too that I'm only thinking about now is as Judd's reputation built into, I think, being like, I mean, I think history will remember him, like pop culture history will remember him as like, here's this guy who put his complete, who like worshipped Gary Shandling and then took the stuff Gary Shandling took him and just in the most mainstream way ever, like took over with this stuff that evolved comedy. Like he has that feather in his cap. But if you look at his career as it became more and more cemented, it's analyzed in a way that's exactly what we're talking about, where reviewers are so shark-like in saying, like you look at his movie, like this is 40, I think, got some bad reviews and so many people going, ah, he made it too long and the long stuff isn't the funny stuff, you know? And that's what people pick apart with his stuff with a fine tooth comb. And it really is that, um, the bal- like, you know, the sa- I guess you could call it like the sad clown ratio. What is it? Is it 52% clown? Because then we'll go with you. We'll take 48% sad. <laughs> but you better if it's if it goes but if it goes even down to 50 50 we're gonna get you we're gonna get you on it but if you get it up to 58 percent funny to sad now we're really talking but if it gets up to 65 leave the sad stuff out you're 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 milking our pain it's like such a weird thing that his his career actually i think shows how people came to analyze this thing that gross point blank i keep arguing is sort of like a proto version of Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, I, I, while we've been talking, I was thinking about Knocked Up and like the, you know, a, a kind of broader 80s idea of the same thing where it's like a boy meets a girl and a mistake happens. Like, you know, turning it into something where it's like uh, a caper and what the reality of this movie, that movie is, is that it's like real people, real characters thinking about how people would feel in that situation. And the funny stuff comes because life can be funny. There are funny situations in everybody's day where you just, you know, maybe it's something that somebody does. It's funny that they don't think is funny and you laugh at it or like you, you know, mm-hmm. kind of giggle to yourself and don't let them know or whatever. But it's all, it's not like watching an old fashioned like vol- Oddville show or something yes. it's it's yes. you know it feels real you believe that those people are real people and and, and it's funny cause i feel like if you asked a lot of people they'd go that movie was really funny man but i bet i'm not the only one where if you said to me what's the scene you remember i bet i'm not the only one who goes her just begging them to read the baby books just being like read the books like that that breaking point that's the one i remember most whereas super bad also from judd's you know, oeuvre, am I pronouncing it right? I'm not smart enough. <laughs> yes. You go, that's yeah. almost the opposite, right? A similar thing. 80s premise, these kids got to find the booze for the big party. Like, that is very, that's 16 Candles. That's like, that's that's cut from so many 80s movies. And then that one, I remember the gags. I remember Jonah Hill getting hit by the car. Obviously, the McLovin stuff, the discussion, all the Bill Hader and McLovin stuff and Joe LaTrulia. Like, you remember the gags for that, but then you also remember that scene at the end where 
uh, I think Jonah Hill gets on the escalator and it kind of floats away. You go, oh, the whole time this movie was about friends realizing that their lives are going to be different moving forward. Like, and not just different from the standards, but like, oh, we're going to move in different directions. And everybody has their hometown friends like that. I went to state school and I remember my good friends who went to the really posh liberal arts schools. I remember my friends who didn't go to college or went to community college. And I remember, you know, you get a year or two into college, you go, I haven't heard from those people. And you go, oh, because life kind of sucks and there's weird classism and we just got pointed in totally different directions. And I wonder if we are ever going to be friends the way we were. Oh shit, we're not. And that's what Superbad is ultimately about. But that what I remember is... is uh, Bill Hader being like, McLovin, you know what? You're cool, man. Let's go. Let's run some red lights and go get drunk. Like, you're like, oh, it's, they, they, so many of those Judd movies find, find the right balance for that premise and that personnel and those actors and really remarkable, really, let alone 40 year old virgin, which kind of kicked it all off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the hacky 80s premise is the title of the movie. Right. And then what do you remember from that? You remember, I feel like Paul Rudd and Seth Rogen clowning on each other in that store with stuff that, let me be clear, a lot of homophobic stuff that I'm sure those people would not put in one of their own movies today. Right. And then you remember the Catherine Keeners. You remember Catherine Keeners just being so gentle with Steve Carell mm -hmm. and like easing him into the growth of the character. You go, that's what I remember. And, uh, I've tried to emulate that even with my more sort of like experimental performance arty stuff. And then when, when Judd, you know, I, I was so lucky. Judd, when I was doing my HB, the show that became my HBO special, Judd actually heard about it and reached out to me. He was kind of like this angel that came out of nowhere. And uh, I will, I've not, I don't know that I've like put this out there too many times, but in a way that I think he doesn't care about probably at all, but I do immensely. I'm like, Everything I do moving forward, even the things he is not involved in, I would like to make him proud because this is a style that has always meant a lot to me. And um, yeah, yeah. And then you start to map it where like I was so obsessed with Andy Kaufman as a kid. And then I start to go, well, how can I like Andy Kaufman so much when he was like a trickster who never broke character? But then I, my favorite movies are the ones where the characters are so real. And I go, well, what Andy was ultimately doing in one sense and the sense that's affected me the most is you go, he always made them laugh, but then sometimes he just like really pissed people off like wrestling women was funny but there's a whole book that exists now just of the hate mail he got to. like people were really mad like the great gatsby bit if you know about that one he actively made them as bored as they've ever been and then the punchline is huge you know like the mickey mouse bit so confusing or mighty mouse rather so confusing undeniably also really funny but there you're perplexed so he was actually i think very masterful at saying I'll give you the laughs. I'll give you the laughs you paid your money for. You're going to feel other things along the way, though. And during his time, there was no one else. That's why people look at him and go, man, he is so weird. There was no one else. I think literally no one else doing anything close to what he was doing. And those comics from that era, I'm lucky in the world of stand-up that every once in a while, I still meet somebody who saw him live or worked on a project with him, and I get to pick their brain, and they're still confused by him. And I am too. I'm not going to claim I'm not, but the thing I admire, like he did, one of the things he did that's lesser known is he did this show at Carnegie Hall where he did, he was already on Taxi at the time. And he did all the bits, the conga drums and Elvis and Tony Clifton, all the stuff that people loved. And then the show ended where he brought out 
the Rockettes and the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and then Santa Claus lowered from the ceiling and then he said hey there's school buses out front anybody who wants milk and cookies get on the buses and I look and I go so much of him is viewed as like this antagonist and this guy who put negativity into his audience's lives and then there's this Carnegie Hall example that he actually made an attempt to end their evening with like a complete sense of euphoria, like childlike euphoria, literally Santa Claus and milk and cookies. I go, oh, that's, in my mind, that is in a weird way exactly what Judd does, poured just poured into an entirely different container. So I think too hard about this stuff. Yeah, but it's all like different roads to the same destination. And, you know, saying that comedy is, is not a monolith, there's all of these different kinds of comedy. People come at comedy from all different perspectives. But at least to my mind, the best comedy, the comedy that really sticks with you, is not just one thing. It's a bunch of different things. I think so. And the emotional content is hilarious. You are pissed off sometimes. You're, you know, there's bittersweet moments. There's moments that are really upsetting. And it's, again, it just comes back to you. That's life. That, that, that's why even with something like Andy Kaufman stuff, that's like really bizarre, sometimes really abstract, there's still this vast emotional life that exists in it. And I think that's the through line. That's the, the common thing, thing with all these movies we've been talking about, all these comics we've been talking about, these uh, filmmakers, that they get that, that it's like you have to reflect the complexities of life to really connect with an audience and to really get your message across, regardless of what that message is. It's Cameron Crowe, I think, is another. Mm, totally. Who obviously say anything is the crossover, but... You look at the 80s movies and, uh, I mean, wacky stuff, right? Like claymation inserted in the middle and like the, all the teen movies had that and like like this wackiness. And then also I, for, I always forget to admit like when I was a kid, probably my favorite movies were like the Police Academy series, just like ham-fisted gags. And one thing I really admire, because if I remember right, Cameron Crowe, he wrote but didn't direct Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And a lot of people look at Fast Times at Ridgemont High and go, that's the pinnacle of just that like raw, get the last 80s comedies that I miss, right? And then you look at it, you go, well, actually, for all the Spicoli stuff and Aloha, Mr. Hand and Order in the Pizza to Class and for all that stuff, there's also a pretty intense scene about a girl getting an abortion um, where you go, man, Cameron Crowe, like, and obviously... 16 Candles and Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink had their moments of emotion. But I would argue you look at those 80s movies and you go, Cameron Crowe was willing to go to, I'm going to, you know, my brother's going to realize that I'm, I need an abortion. Like that is, that is a cut deeper, I would argue, than most of what those wacky comedies were willing to give us. And, and again, I would point out not, a lot of people with Fast Times actually remember it as one of the funniest, gaggiest ones, which ties right into the thing I keep thinking about and talking about, which is like, you're remembering it as one of the funniest ones, but I can't help but wonder if that's also because it sits in your gut as one of the rawest emotional ones, but you forget that scene. Every time I rewatch that movie, I do have that thing where I go, I forgot about that. Jesus, I forgot about that. I just like the thing where they spicoli messes up the car. You know what I mean? Like I, right. I remember that. Yeah. But uh, I can't help but wonder if that's part of why it's remembered as the funniest 
as well in a lot of, I think in a lot of people's opinions. Right. Yeah. And like, you know, even with the, the broader stuff in that movie, like you said, there's this, you know, it, it feels like real situations that people experience and then moving into say anything and maybe even singles like those movies having these really funny moments, definitely feeling like you can uh, understand why people would lump those films into the like put them in the comedy section in the video store. Yeah. But also having like the stuff with John Mahoney, you know, like defrauding all <laughs> yeah. of the people in the nursing home. Defrauding and all the elderly who rely on him. You're like, Oh my God. And it's, it's really heavy and feels real. Yeah. And it makes those, it makes, uh, that, that's what, you know, makes you come back to those movies is the combination of the, perfect like comedic timing having all these really talented yeah. actors um you know people and like lily taylor and people like that playing these smaller parts but really just yeah and and actually that that whole subplot where you know she's writing these fucking ridiculous songs about this boy joe lies when right, he cries but she tried to kill herself yeah and it's like you know striking that balance again and all her friends are like quietly concerned in the way that you are when you have a friend that you realize is going down that road. And Cameron Crowe too. It's like, and and some of his movies, you know, he he really like I missed the boat on Jerry Maguire. I didn't see it when it came out. I don't know why. You know, I was young and didn't have the time or money to see every movie and everybody. And I, it was one of those ones that I was like, oh, I got to see that, and I never did. And I just always knew that. Obviously, as someone who hadn't seen it, I know that as what the Show Me the Money movie. That's the that's the. That's what I know it is. Oh, I guess I'll go watch this movie about a sports agent who's crazy. I'm telling you, I watched that movie and legitimately came moments away from proposing to someone who I'd been seeing for years and who I ultimately realized it was a very unhealthy relationship for me. I go, man, that movie, I thought that was show me the money. And that almost made me marry somebody I shouldn't have. That's powerful stuff. And then Almost Famous, which is a, definitely more of a drama at that point, but still has so many funny parts. And then that beautiful scene that I think only Cameron Crowe would write of, he tried to trade you for a case of beer. And then Kate Hudson just pauses. And it, I think one of the, a line that broke my heart, maybe more than as much as any other, you know, you know, seeing her just going, what kind of beer? <laughs> yeah. Just go, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh, and my Bud Lighter to my Heineken. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, is it, cra is it from a craft brewery or is it Natty yeah. Light? You just go. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> but it's the people with the funny brains that can often, right? Which then ties into all the stuff that I think is a little nonsense of like, oh, you have to be in pain to be funny. And a lot of people are. And I can't pretend I'm not, but I go, oh, there is something to be said for the people who can explain that pain the best can also give us the joke, like the guy revealing his sexuality during the plane, plane crash, you know, like the people who can nail both of those in a crystallized way, you know, we've named Judd and Cameron Crowe and there's a lot of other people too, especially, especially after the 2000s when I think Judd made that okay and like commendable and actually hot and buzzworthy but it's the peep it's the people who can verbalize something real in a crystal clear way and then put a punchline that makes you laugh because la and again one of the tropes that is very true laughter is involuntary you know you don't get to opt into laughter you real you you some and then that's why sometimes you're laughing at a thing where you go "Ooh, it is i sh that is inappropriate i should not be liking this but i do i guess 
and it, it's the people who can make you laugh in that involuntary way and then also come up with the what kind of beer line where I go, you're, th these are the people who I probably quietly consider heroes as an inter as, as a creative person, yeah. you know? <sighs> I think, um, that is a lovely note to finish on. My God, this has been so amazing. Really, oh, really good. Because I've been—I will tell you—I've been sitting in my head this whole time, going, uh, "This, uh, I'm, I'm steamrolling no. this and rambling too much, and I no, feel bad." The opposite. That's how I feel no. every time I do. No, no, no. The, the exact opposite. This is this is the good stuff. This is exactly what I'm looking for. So, thank you so much. Um, I really, I really appreciate this. This is a, this is a, this is going to be a classic. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm, uh, it's uh it's been a, a joy, and I actually will say aspects of it where I go, oh, these are, these are a lot of things I kind of knew about myself and my opinions that I've never had the opportunity to just like bounce so directly off. And then like I was joking, you're also able to say things where I go, oh, that's what I mean. That's that thing. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's what I mean. So thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, great. Uh, I, I, yeah. Cool. Uh, again, thank you so much. This was absolutely amazing. All right. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Take care. Bye. I'll see you. I mean, come on. That was incredible. Thanks so much again to Chris for being so generous with his time and for that totally amazing conversation. You can stream and download his new special, Chris Gethard, Half My Life, right now. So do it. Okay, uh, I know we're running long this week, so super quick spark of inspiration from me. Since it's still Pride Month and Black Music Month, I want to talk about one of my faves, Sid, a.k.a. Sid the Kid, she was a member of the Odd Future Music Collective. She's a member of the band The Internet, who I also love. But I want to talk about Sid's solo album, Finn. Finn? Finn? Let's say Finn. She talked about it kind of derisively and basically said it was a way to make money to support the music that The Internet were making, which is still her main focus. But I really love this album. Um, it's a lot poppier than the internet stuff, and it reminds me of a lot of the pop R&B that I love the most, like Aaliyah and TLC, that kind of stuff. So check that out this week. And that's about it. Please do me a solid and tell your friends about this show. It really helps to get the word out. Um, other than that, it's NYC Pride this weekend. It's going to be great. If you are in the city, have so, so, so much fun. Be careful. Look out for yourself. And until next time, bye. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.